following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. All right, so this morning uh, we're going to pick up our series in Genesis again. We're in this book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, first few chapters of the Bible. And we have started, we started last week looking at the life of Abraham in chapter 12. Uh, If you didn't catch that message, you can listen online. But uh, we're looking at the life of this very significant person in the biblical story, Abraham, uh, who just continues to be a major figure in the biblical story and and right down through history, uh, right down to our own day. We looked last week at those promises. Uh, You might remember in the beginning of Genesis 12 where God makes these incredible promises to Abraham and says, you will be blessed and all nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. And that promise that all the nations would eventually be blessed through Abraham's family, that sets the trajectory for the entire rest of the biblical story. Uh, And that story continues today. God is still blessing the nations. God is still blessing all people uh, through Abraham. And every time that someone bows the knee to Jesus and gives their life to him, that promise is fulfilled again and again and again. So we are the living continuation of these extraordinary promises that God made to this man thousands and thousands of years ago. So we tried to get our heads and our hearts around the bigness of that story last week, uh, the Abraham story that's continuing today and and will continue on until Christ returns. So we're going to continue with Abraham's story, and today we're in the second half of chapter 12, and Catherine Savage is going to come and read this passage for us. So thanks, Cassie. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Okay. It's an interesting story, isn't it? I remember when uh, Anna went into labor with our middle child, Lawson, and it was kind of late at night uh, when her waters broke and the contractions started. And we gave it a little bit of time and then eventually uh, headed off to hospital. It was probably maybe 4 a.m., 5 a.m. by the time we got to the hospital. And so by that stage, Anna's contractions were getting quite severe and reasonably close together. And this was the first time she'd gone into labor because with Josh, she had a C-section. 
So this was a whole new experience for her, and, and so they, they kind of took us into this delivery suite, and there we were. And, and you know, they, they leave you alone for a while because they know nothing's going to happen for a little while, so just the two of us there for quite a while, and, and Anna's sitting there on the bed having these painful contractions, and so I did what any good husband would do in that situation. I read a book, <laughs> and uh, I brought with me <laughs> this great book, uh, and I, there was a lovely, comfortable chair in the corner of the room there, and so I just made myself at home and just sat there and just a bit of a nap, a bit of a read. I uh, felt, you know, I had a bit of time to kill here, and, and in fact, the title of the book was Replenish. And it was about being spiritually renewed and just emotionally rejuvenated. And so here I was being spiritually and emotionally renewed while Anna was going through one of the most painful experiences of her life. And at one point, the midwife came in and gave me the look of death. And I realized this might not be the best way to use my time right now. So I then kind of went into supportive husband mode and actually tried to be helpful, which I probably wasn't. So that was not a great husband moment for me. Uh, that was kind of one of the low points, and I've had many, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, uh, many, many low husband, bad husband moments over the years. But I at least take solace from the fact that bad as I have been, I've never stooped as low as Abraham <laughs> in this passage here. I mean, what this guy does is it makes every husband in the world look good. The, the, the lengths that he goes to, the levels that he drops to in this passage are just amazing what he does. It's, it's really quite incredible. The, the name or the title of the, the story, in my Bible at least, I don't know what it's called in yours, the title is uh, Abraham in Egypt or Abraham in Egypt in my Bible. You know who wrote that title? A man. <laughs> Do you know what the title would be if a woman had written that? It would be Abraham is the dumbest husband in the world. That would be the name of the story because that's basically what he does and what he is. This is just one of the low points in Abraham's life. Unfortunately, it's not the only one. And if you read on, he's, he's got several absolute clankers uh, through the book of Genesis. But this is one of the low points, and he really makes an embarrassment of himself here. So let's have a look at this story and try to figure out where it all goes so badly wrong for him, given that last week he did so well. And he was a man of faith, and he was a man of vision, and he was a man of obedience, and yet here it's just the complete opposite. So, picking it up in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham or Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Now, so Abraham at this point is living in Canaan. He's living in the land of promise, the land that God has, has promised to give him and his descendants. And then there, there is a famine that comes upon that land. And so Abraham decides to go to Egypt, go south to Egypt. Now, that in itself is kind of understandable. There's no food. You've got to have food. So he makes this pilgrimage down to Egypt. But the telling thing is that there's no reference to him involving God in this decision at all. I mean, you think about the contrast with the beginning of chapter 12 where God tells Abraham to go, and Abraham goes. God is taking the initiative. God is taking the lead. Abraham is only moving at God's request and initiative. Now, Abraham just decides that he needs to go. Uh, there is no mention of him talking to God about this, involving God in the decision, asking God, inquiring of God, seeking God in any way. He just, he just goes. He just decides to go without acknowledging God is the Lord of the famine. God is the one who gives and takes away. And wouldn't it at least be worth asking what God wants to do in this situation? But he doesn't. He just goes. So that's the first bad sign, and it's kind of indicative of what's going to happen next. 
So then verse 11, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now you see this, you know something bad's coming now. Because when a husband says that, it's, it's either he's, he wants something, he's done something stupid, or he's about to do something stupid. And sure enough, with Abraham, it's option C, he's about to do something stupid. I know what a beautiful woman you are, he says, buttering, buttering her up. Uh, and then verse 12, here's Abraham's genius plan. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say, you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So it, it's kind of hard to understand why Abraham wants to pass Sarah off as his sister rather than his wife. And there's various explanations for why he would even suggest this. I think most logically what he's thinking, if he's thinking at all, is they're going to get down to Egypt. Sarah is very beautiful. She's going to be noticed by these Egyptian men, and one of these men is going to want to marry her. If they think that Abraham is her husband, they are probably going to try and take him out so that they can marry Sarah. So Abraham's life's going to be in danger. But if they just think Abraham's her brother, then he's not a threat at all. He's not a threat to the marriage. So they would go ahead and marry Sarah. And in fact, they'd probably treat Abraham quite well in that regard. So who is Abraham thinking about in this scenario? Himself. Yeah. He's only really concerned about protecting his own life. He's only concerned about looking out for number one. This is just about him saving his own skin about him making sure that he gets treated well and his life's protected and everything's going to be okay for him. He doesn't give a rip about Sarah at this point. He doesn't care about her safety. He doesn't care about the fact that he's making her an adulteress, essentially, by having her married off to someone else while she's still married to him. He doesn't care about maybe sending her into a situation of exploitation, a situation maybe of abuse, a situation where she could be mistreated. He's not thinking any of that. Or if he is, he's not saying it. He's just thinking, well, what can I do to protect my life and make sure things are good for me in this scenario? And in the process, completely sidelines his wife. It's an incredible act of selfishness. He is utterly self-absorbed, utterly self-focused, self-obsessed in this scenario to the point of completely dishonoring his own wife. Now, we don't know exactly how Sarah responded to this. At least it's not recorded, um, possibly because she used too many expletives and it couldn't be written down. Um, but the reality is, regardless of how she responded, she probably didn't have much choice. This is a heavily patriarchal culture. Uh, women were unfortunately treated more as property than people, and she would have just had to go along with this if Abraham set his mind to it. So this is exactly what happens. But then the story takes an interesting turn that I don't think Abraham and Sarah were necessarily expecting. Verse 14, when Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was very beautiful. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. So here's something they didn't see coming. They thought maybe one of these Egyptian guys might notice her and want to get married. They didn't necessarily think one of these Egyptian guys would be the king of the entire nation. But that's what happens. Pharaoh, who was the king, his officials notice Sarah. And they decide that she would make a very good addition to Pharaoh's harem of women. And so she is taken into his palace, which is really just a euphemism for saying that she gets added to the harem. He would have had all these wives, all these concubines, all these, this whole harem of women, and, and so Sarah just gets added to that 
rotation of women there to serve Pharaoh's needs. And you imagine how this experience would have been for Sarah. Still married to Abraham, but now taken into the palace of Pharaoh and just added to his long list of women. And that's what happens. And good old Abraham, sure enough, he gets treated very well out of this whole scenario. Verse 16, he treated Abraham well for her sake. Abraham acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and male and female servants and camels. So Abraham's living large in Egypt. He's doing well. He's got all these possessions, got all this wealth. He's doing great. And it's off the back of basically making Sarah into a, a sex slave for Pharaoh. This guy is unbelievable in the way that he's acting. And then verse 17, you finally have God entering the story in verse 17. Notice that God's been very silent up to this point. He hasn't been part of this particular story, and that in itself is quite telling. But now in verse 17, God inserts himself into the story, into the action. And we read that the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. And you might ask yourself why God inflicted diseases on Pharaoh rather than on Abraham. It was Abraham that deserved it, if anybody did. But I think that the principle that you've got here is the principle of something sacred that has fallen into the wrong hands. You know, Sarah is God's sacred vessel. She's God's chosen instrument to bring blessing to the nations. And she has fallen into the wrong hands by being now the possession of Pharaoh, the pagan king of Egypt. And God is not happy about this situation. It's not unlike the situation when the Ark of the Covenant of Israel falls into the hands of the Philistines later in the Bible. And what happens is God inflicts these plagues upon the Philistine towns, wherever the ark is, wherever they move the ark around, God just inflicts serious plagues, diseases, sicknesses upon those towns, upon those people, until finally the Philistines return the ark. That's basically what's going on. God is saying, Sarah is, is mine. Yes, she, she belongs to Abraham in a sense, but she's mine. She's, she's my daughter. She's my precious chosen possession. And I'm not going to let her just become the possession of this pagan king. She's not part of that story. She's part of this story. She's part of my story. And she's going to be my chosen instrument to bring blessing to the nations. And so God acts and he does something about this. And the action takes the form of these plagues, these serious sicknesses that come upon Pharaoh and his household. And Pharaoh wasn't dumb. He could have figured this out. They were very tuned into this physical phenomena that may have deeper spiritual significance, even though they didn't follow uh, the God of the Bible. So Pharaoh would have known something's up when all these sicknesses come upon him and his household. He would have known something's wrong, something's wrong in the kingdom. And he would have done his homework and done a whole investigation and eventually figured out that Abraham is not Sarah's brother at all, but her husband. And so he summons Abraham into the royal court, into the palace, and he confronts him. Verse 18, so Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me? He said, that's a very indicting question. It's, by the way, the same question that God asked Adam and Eve in the garden after they'd sinned and eaten the fruit. What have you done? It's the same question again that God asked Cain after he killed Abel. What have you done? And now the question is on the lips of Pharaoh and not God, confronting Abraham. It's a question that implies the person stands guilty, the person stands culpable, the person stands as a sinner, not only before men, but before God. But now Pharaoh's asking the question, what have you done to me, Abraham? 
And Abraham doesn't reply. At least the answer is not recorded. Maybe he didn't have a reply. Maybe he just felt too small and pathetic at this point. We don't know, but he doesn't say anything. And so Pharaoh just keeps talking. Verse 19, why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. I find that the ending of this story quite surprising. Do you think, what, what, what should really have happened at this point? Like under normal circumstances, Pharaoh should really have had Abraham and Sarah killed at this point, right? I mean, Abraham has completely conned the king of Egypt. He has totally pulled the wool over the eyes of Pharaoh and duped him and all of his officials. He has lied blatantly. Sarah has gone along with this. These people are foreigners anyway, don't even belong in the country. Pharaoh would have been perfectly within his rights in this day and age and custom to just have them killed and be done away with the whole problem. This was an embarrassment to Pharaoh. This was an embarrassment to his kingdom. Why did he not just have them killed? And yet Pharaoh here, this pagan worshiper of other gods, emerges as the hero of the story. He shows compassion. He shows kindness to Abraham and says, here's your wife, take her and go. He allows them to not only have their lives saved, but to continue as a married couple and leave Egypt, head back to the promised land and take with them all the possessions that acquired in Egypt. You would think that he would at least strip them of all those valuables because they were acquired under false pretenses. But he doesn't even do that. He says, no, 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 take all that stuff too. Take the donkeys and the camels and the sheep and all the gold and all the silver and all the slaves and, and go. It's remarkable. And so you have at the end of the story here, it's like everything is upside down. Pharaoh, the pagan king, is suddenly Mr. Nobility. He's Mr. Honorable, Mr. Compassionate, Mr. Gracious. And here's Abraham, who's supposed to be the father of our faith and the founder of the Judeo-Christian tradition, looking weak and small and embarrassed and pathetic and completely selfish. Everything is upside down. Nothing in this story is the way that it's supposed to be. And Abraham comes off looking like a pretty bad husband. Now, before we get too down on Abraham in this story and become too critical of him, we probably need to have a little look at our own lives, right? Because bad as Abraham is in this story, we've all done things that we're not proud of. Is that right? We've all done things. at time. We probably haven't done this. Particular. I don't imagine there's too many husbands where you've pretended your wife is your sister and married her off to a pagan king. It probably hasn't happened. But we have all done things that we are ashamed of. You know, we can all think of those times. I'm sure that this whole incident became for Abraham a real source of regret and shame and embarrassment in his life. Maybe not at the time, but certainly later looking back on it. And haven't we all done things that we're not proud of? You know, you can think of things that you've said, that you, you think now those words, you just wish you could take them back. You think of things that you've done, you got yourself in that stupid situation, you made a foolish decision, you did something completely stupid, and you wish you could undo it, but it's, it's done, it's there. And we all have these times, and when you think about those times, and when someone like me stands up and starts talking about those times, you just feel your stomach starting to knot, makes you cringe, makes you embarrassed, you just hope no one else in the room has any idea about that thing because you're trying to just cover it over, pretend like it never happened. And some of you, those things have caused major damage in your life. Some of them you still live with that regret today and it's still having repercussions. For others of you, it's very hidden and it's very private and maybe no one ever knew, but you know and God knows and it's still there and it's still on your mind. 
The reality is, in one way or another, we are all Abraham in this story. You know, we might not like to think it, and we might think that he's the bad guy for what he did there, but the reality is, we are all Abraham in one way or another, right? We're all broken. That's the great theological truth in this story. We're all messed up. We're all broken. We're all sinful. We're all crooked sticks. We're all cracked vessels. We all fall so far short of the life that God intends for us. And I don't say that to, to load you up with, with guilt and make you feel worse about yourself, but just simply because this is the starting point of the biblical story to recognize there's no greater than, there's no less than here. There's no people that are, that are further ahead, people that are further behind. We're all broken. We're all messed up. We all fall short. That's the starting point. There's a guy called Brennan Manning, who is a well-known Christian author and speaker. He died a few years ago now, and he's a really prolific author on the subject of grace. He spoke for, for decades after decades on, on God's incredible, abundant grace, and a lot of people went to hear him and, and read his books. And through his adult life, he also struggled constantly with alcoholism, just constantly. And he just went on these absolute benders. And he could go and teach a conference on the grace of God one day, and the next day he would be in the local bar getting absolutely plastered. And this was his life. He just oscillated and he struggled and he wrestled. And this was the demon that he fought against his entire life. And he says this. Let me read it from the screen. When I get honest, I admit that I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. <laughs> that's honest, right? You know, and that's each of us. Yeah? It might not be beer, but it's something. You know? Each of us, we're saints and we're sinners. We are redeemed and we're all absolutely fallen. We're broken people. And so I can relate to Abraham in this story. I think this, funnily enough, the story kind of makes him more relatable. You know, like I, I struggle to relate to Abraham the, the father of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I struggle to relate to him personally. But Abraham, the failed husband, I can relate to that because that's where I live. Right? I can relate to this guy that messes up his marriage and treats his wife poorly because I've done that. I continue to do that. I think this, this brings Abraham a little closer to home and reminds us of our own weaknesses and our own flaws. And it's not just Abraham, is it? I mean, you look right through the biblical story. Why does God continue to, to, to choose these people that are just so completely messed up to bring his blessing into the world? Listen to this little summary of some of the people in Genesis. And some of these are ones that we've looked at and some of them we haven't yet. Uh, Cain is jealous of Abel and kills him. Lamech introduces polygamy to the world. Noah, the most righteous man of his generation, gets drunk and curses his own grandson. Lot, when his home is surrounded by residents of Sodom who want to violate his visitors, offers instead that they can have sex with his daughters. Abraham plays favorites between his son Isaac and Ishmael. They're estranged. Isaac plays favorites between his sons Jacob and Esau. They're bitter enemies for 20 years. Jacob plays favorites between Joseph and his other 11 sons. His brothers want to kill Joseph and end up selling him into slavery. Their marriages are disasters. These people need a therapist. They need Dr. Phil, Dr. Laura, Dr. Ruth, Dr. Spock, Dr. Seuss. They need somebody. Feel any better about your family? That's who we're dealing with here, people. And if nothing else, it should remind us we're all in the same boat. You know, ultimately, yes, Abraham's the great father of our faith, but he was a broken, sinful man, just like we are. And I think this should help us come to terms with our own brokenness a little bit more, maybe be a little bit more real about our own brokenness with ourselves 
and with God and hopefully with others. But I think the real beauty of the story is not so much Abraham's failure as it is God's faithfulness. That's really where we're to put our focus, I think, in the story. Abraham, yes, he's a miserable failure, but what really shines through in the story is the incredible faithfulness of God. Just look at the way God blesses him in spite of his faithlessness, gives him all of these possessions. He spares his life. And at the end of the story, in spite of all Abraham's stupidity, he and Sarah are still heading back to the promised land. Their marriage is still intact, amazingly. It was probably a pretty quiet camel ride back, I would imagine. But they're still heading back there. And the promise is still continuing. The story is moving forward and God is gracious. This is the faithfulness of God. And if God's faithful to Abraham in that situation, will he not even more so be faithful to you and I? This reminds us that in spite of our continuing stupidity in life, God is relentlessly faithful. No matter how many times you blow it, no matter how stupid you have been, no matter that massive dumb mistake you made, or the mistakes you continue to make, because we just keep going back to the same dumb stuff and the same dumb habits over and over and over again. No matter how far we fall, no matter how many times we fall, God is endlessly, endlessly gracious with you, endlessly compassionate and endlessly merciful. He is faithful. The Bible says when we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny His own nature, which is to be faithful. He can't even be unfaithful because his very nature is to be faithful, gracious, loving, and kind. And that is who he is. It's who he's been all of your life. And it's who he'll be for the rest of your days. God's faithful. You know this in your life. I know this in my own life. I've experienced it so many times. There's a song in recent years that's reminded me of this that I've come back to quite a few times, a worship song called I Am Redeemed. And I'll read you some of the words. It says, Seems like all I can see was the struggle. Haunted by ghosts that lived in my past. Bound up in shackles of all of my failures. Wondering how long is this going to last. Then you look at this prisoner and say to me, Son, stop fighting a fight that's already been won. I am redeemed. You set me free. So I'll shake off these heavy chains and wipe away every stain. Now I'm not who I used to be. I am redeemed. I love that line. I can barely get through that line without choking up. Just to picture God looking at me and saying, Son, stop fighting a fight that's already been won. You know, we fight against our own sense of inadequacy, don't we? We fight against our own failures. We fight against feeling unworthy. I know I do. We fight against feeling so insecure, feeling so unlovable, feeling like such a failure. And God says, Son, daughter, stop fighting a fight. That's already been won. I've won that battle for you on the cross, he says. He's taken all of your sin. He's taken all of that shame. He's taken all of that failure upon himself. He's carried it in your place. Yes, it is real. Yes, those mistakes are real. But Jesus has carried all of that. And he's done it so that you could be redeemed, so that you could be completely forgiven, so that next time you screw up, and there will be a next time, you can be reminded that your identity is not in that mistake. 
Your identity is not in that stupid act or that stupid word or that stupid deed or that moment of anger, that moment of impurity, that moment of greed, that moment of weakness, whatever that moment of going back to the old addictions, whatever that is. That is not your identity. That is not who you are. That does not define you. You are defined by being a son or daughter of God. Your identity is now in Christ. That's where you live. That is your home. In Christ, He is your righteousness. He is your salvation. His obedience is your obedience now. His faithfulness is your faithfulness. His life is your life. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. And when God looks at you, He sees the face of His own Son, Jesus. Not your failures, not your mistakes, not your, not your shame. He sees Christ. That's where your identity is. And there's nothing you can do that will ever take you out of the Father's hand. I think sometimes we have a hard time with this because we can't forgive ourselves. We just can't believe it's that good. We can't believe the good news is really that good, and so we can't actually let ourselves off the hook. The problem is not God's forgiveness. It's your own willingness to forgive yourself. But if God has forgiven you this much, can you not put down the stick that you're beating yourself with? You know, if God's forgiveness, if God's faithfulness is really that good, and it is, this is the lesson I've had to learn. We've then got to learn to stop beating ourselves up over every single mistake and continuing to beat ourselves up over mistakes in our past time and time again and living in that place of shame, living in that place of condemnation. We're set free from that. That is not who you are. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I hope you can let that truth sink into your bones. I know sometimes we, we know these things at a head level, but we need to hear God speak it over our lives again. My son, my daughter, stop fighting a fight that's already been won. You are redeemed, you are loved, you are forgiven. Live in that forgiveness, not the guilt of your past mistakes. Now let me just draw out one other dimension of the story. There's, you might have already started picking this up, but there's some strong connections between the story about Abraham and Sarah and another story further on in the Bible. And this is, we've found this time and time again in Genesis, these connections between these stories and stories that have come before them, stories that come after them in the Bible. Well, with this story, you think about how this begins. Abraham and Sarah, God's chosen family, they make this journey from Canaan down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. Now, that sounds a lot like another story. That happens a little bit later in the book of Genesis, where God's chosen family makes a trip from Canaan down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. It's the story of Jacob and his 12 sons, you know, one of whom was Joseph, one of whom he was already in the land, he was already the prime minister. And, and God's family goes down to Egypt because of famine. And that's where they begin to live. That's how Israel ends up in Egypt. And then you think about this whole episode with Abraham and Pharaoh and God sending the plagues upon Pharaoh's household. Now, what does that sound like? You think of the plagues, think of the plagues of Egypt. In the book of Exodus, God sends these 10 plagues upon the Egyptians because his people are in slavery. They're in bondage. They belong to the wrong people, essentially. The same thing is going on here. This is a little taste of, of the plagues. And then at the end of the story, Pharaoh summons Abraham and he says, take your wife and go. And this sounds a lot like when Pharaoh summons Moses. And after he's sick of all these plagues, he says, take your people and go. And he, he sends them away. He lets them go from Egypt. And so just as Abraham and Sarah leave Egypt, loaded up with all the possessions they've acquired while they're there, in the same way Israel 
at the beginning of the Exodus, walked out of Egypt with all the possessions that they'd acquired while they were in Egypt. The story about Abraham is a foreshadowing of the story of the Exodus. It's a foreshadowing of this later story that is coming. Now, that's incredible when you think about it, because this is a, this is a time in Abraham's life that is so negative, and it's such an embarrassment. It's a story he'd rather forget. And yet, look at the way God uses that story to point to something that is so good that's coming down the track, to point to the Exodus story, which is a story of hope and a story of salvation and a story of deliverance. You see what God is doing? He's using this past story of Abraham's to redeem this future for his people and to point to something much more hopeful that is yet to come. I think it shows us the way that if we allow him to, God will take those stories in your past, those things you're not proud of, those past failures and mistakes, and he will use them to redeem your future. He will use them to bring blessing into the future for you and for other people. He will use them to bring hope. He will use them to bring possibilities, maybe that you're not even aware of yet. And very often that comes through your willingness to share something of that story with someone else. Because when you can share something of that pain that you've experienced, maybe that failure that you've experienced, that can speak incredible encouragement to someone who's going through the same kind of thing. I think of the story of a guy called Nicky Cruz who uh, grew up on the streets of New York. This is in the 1950s, 60s. It was an era where there was massive gang violence in New York. And uh, Nicky's had come from a background just of terrible child abuse uh, from his family, particularly his mum, and ended up in New York on the streets. He got caught up in the gang culture there, this culture of violence, culture of alcoholism. He became part of one of the major gangs there, the Mau Mau Gang. And he, he, he rose up through the ranks of this gang and became this violent warlord in New York City. And his life was just one of total chaos and total dysfunction. There was a psychiatrist once that had to do a court-ordered report of him and said, Nicky, you are heading for prison, for the electric chair, and for hell. That's my assessment of you. That was a clinical assessment. That's what his life was. It was just hopeless. And then one day, he encountered this guy, Bruce Wilkerson, who was a preacher on the streets of New York, and Bruce Wilkerson just took a particular interest in Nicky Cruz, tried to get through to him with the message of the gospel, with the message of Jesus, at great risk to his life, because Nicky threatened him, spat at him, threatened to beat him up, threatened his life, threatened his family. But Bruce Wilkerson persisted. And that somehow stayed in Nicky Cruz's head, that message of God's love, that message of Jesus loving him, just this simple truth. And a few nights later, he went to a rally that Bruce Wilkerson was holding where he heard the full message of the gospel preached. And that night, Jesus just came into, into Nicky's life in an incredible way. He went forward at the altar call and surrendered his life to Christ. And he traded, he and the gang members that he was with gave up their weapons for Bibles that night, made this, made this exchange, made this trade. And from that moment, Nicky just had such a heart to help other lost, broken young people on the streets of New York that were, going, that were where he was and were heading where he was heading. And that just became his focus. It became his mission, just out of a context of total dysfunction and chaos. Now God transformed his heart and just gave him such a burden to reach back into, particularly the lives of teenagers on the streets of New York. He started a ministry to help them. He, he traveled the world speaking to, to young people and just connecting them with the hope and the life that is ultimately found in Jesus. It's just an example of how God takes a story of, of such brokenness and, and such chaos and dysfunction and redeems it and makes something of it where he can turn around and then speak God's hope to those who are in that same struggle, in that same battle. 
And God will do this if we allow him to. We're not all Nicky Cruz. I know it's not, all, it's not going to be that dramatic. But whatever your past has been and whatever your present is, as we open our hearts and allow God to bring about transformation and bring his grace into our life, we can then be an instrument of encouraging other people who are in that same place. Because you'll be able to relate to many people in ways that I can't. I might be able to share some Bible verses with them and pray as a pastor. But if you'd come alongside them and say, I've been there. You know how powerful those words are? When someone can say, I know what you're going through because that was me. That was me 10 years ago. That was me 20 years ago. You might have an anger issue. And as God works in your heart, there is no one better than you to encourage someone else who's struggling with that same anger issue and cannot see a way out of it. You know, you might have been in a toxic relationship or been through a tough marriage breakup or real family dysfunction, whatever it is. There is going to be no one better place than you to come alongside others and say, I know. There's such solidarity that's created when someone can say to you, I've, I know, I've been there. I know from personal experience what you're going through. Can I share my story? You're not trying to be a guru and give all sorts of advice, but just can I share my story with you? Can I encourage you? Can I just give a little bit of hope? to you. You might have struggled or be struggling with a particular addiction. There is no one better than you to speak into the lives of others that are going through that same addiction and just feel totally broken by it, totally hopeless. The more they try, the harder it gets. And you may be the one that God puts in those situations, brings someone into your life, that you're able just to share your story, encourage them a little bit, pray with them, give them, give them some hope that it can be better than what they're experiencing right now. So my plea to you would just make yourself available to this and see the way that God will take whatever you have been into in the past, whatever the struggles, whatever the stuff, whatever the brokenness, he will take that and he will redeem it. Yes, it won't take away from what has happened in your past. It doesn't mean that's not real and that's not painful for you, but you will see the way that God will use it. He works in all things for the good of those who love him, Scripture says. And he will work through that pain to bring hope into the future for you and for someone else. God will redeem your past, bring hope for the future if you let him. I think of the old Christian chorus, just simple lines um, that I sometimes come back to that say, something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. But he made something beautiful out of my life. Isn't that true? Wasn't that true for Abraham? All Abraham really had to offer God was brokenness and strife. That's certainly what you see in this story. And yet God made something beautiful out of his life. If you would bring your life to him, all you've got to offer him is brokenness and strife as well. You're kidding yourself if you think it's any more than that. But God will take that and he will make something beautiful out of the ashes of your life and my life if we open our hearts to him and allow him to work through us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you just take the most broken people and you redeem their lives and you raise them up and you pour out your grace upon them. We thank you that you've done that with Abraham and that you continue to do it in our lives today. Father, we are all so flawed. We've all got just so much brokenness in our lives. But we are so grateful that you're a God who is faithful, even when we are faithless. Lord, I pray as we head out of here today, we go back to our lives and things happen. And God, we know that we're going to mess up again. 
and we're going to stuff up again and we're going to be back to the same things again. But I pray in those moments when we're tempted to believe that we are unlovable and we're tempted to believe that we have fallen too far and cannot be forgiven and we're tempted to believe that you have given up on us or that maybe we've finally exhausted the supply of your forgiveness. I pray, God, that you would remind us that your love is, is unrelenting. It's unstopping. It's unending. It will never, ever run dry, no matter how much we make a mess of things. Your grace surrounds us, and you carry us in your arms. Thank you that your mercies are new every single morning. Lord, we're grateful, and we pray today that simple message of your faithfulness would sink into our hearts more deeply than it has before. Lord, that's my sense that many of us in this room, we know these things in our heads, but we're still waiting for them to drop into our hearts and really be the center that we live out of. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and press these deep truths into our lives and remind us of your faithfulness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.